Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your word, grateful for the example of Christ, grateful for the ways that you do remind us that there is no reward or no wealth or no power that could satisfy us. You've given us far more than we could ever get for ourselves. Would you remind us of that this morning? Amen. So one of the things that we do try not to do is to read in our services really weird and confusing and possibly obscure passages from the Old Testament without saying anything about them. Um, Habakkuk could be one of those, right? What happens in Habakkuk here at the beginning is actually something that happens fairly frequently in Scripture, where someone comes to God with a pretty earnest question, and God's going to answer the question, but in answering that question, he's going to kind of flip upside down whatever the asker of that question wanted to know. Flip their expectations upside down. It's going to give them an answer that sounds bizarre and kind of shocking, but it's going to show that the assumptions underneath the question weren't quite right. So Habakkuk comes to God with a plea. He says, help, we're being oppressed. Can't you see the violence inherent in the system? We're being oppressed. How long are we going to have to cry out to you for help? We know who you are, and we know your character, and so we know that you don't like this. So when are you going to act? When are you going to do something about the wicked people who are stomping everyone underneath them down? God answers, and it's one of those answers that kind of flips the expectations upside down. His response is, well, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Think Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, he says. And they're going to swarm through the land and rip everything to shreds, and you're not going to be able to stand against them. So Habakkuk comes back and says, wait, God, they're worse than us. How does that make anything better? They're way worse. How is that going to help? How is that your justice? And God's answer to that is that this is my answer to what's been happening. This is even the means that I'm going to use to bring you deliverance. But it is true that it's going to be really hard. It is true that it's going to feel really dark. Sometimes so hard, so dark, that it even feels hopeless. But the just, or the righteous, are going to have to hold on by faith. They're going to have to cling to my character and cling to my promises, even when they can't see what it is that I'm doing. They'll have to trust that I'm good, because there's not another way forward. The only option that you have, what you have to do, is to live by faith in my goodness. Habakkuk needs to see what God is going to do through the eyes of faith. What God is telling, them, telling him is that if he does that, then his expectations are going to be flipped. We've got something actually that's fairly similar happening in our gospel reading with Jesus and the apostles. They have an earnest-sounding, authentic question for Jesus, a request, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus responds to this good question with a weird answer. If you have the tiniest bit of faith, you could make a, plea, a tree, pluck itself out of the ground, run over to the sea, and plant it. So you've got to think that the disciples, when they heard that, thought on the one hand, wow, that's really cool. That's so powerful. But then on the other hand, they thought, but why would we want to do that? What's the point of that? That's a weird answer. It's going to be a weird answer for us. But there is some context that is going to help us, I think, to understand what Jesus is telling his disciples. And that's what I want us to sit in this morning. Specifically, 
Chapter 17 follows chapter 16. Chapter 16 is really helpful. One of the things that stands out in chapter 16 is the Pharisees' bad example. So throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke is very frequently going to speak to a mixed audience of people. Right? So it's not just his disciples who are there with him. There are the 12, right? the ones that we're going to call the apostles. There are other followers of Jesus. But then there are also Pharisees. And so at different times throughout the gospel, Jesus is going to speak to one group of that audience, but he's going to do it in a way that makes sure that the other groups can hear him too. So like, let's say he says something directly to the Pharisees. He's going to say it to the Pharisees, but he's saying it so his disciples can hear him. If he says it to his disciples, he's going to say it to his disciples, but he's saying it so the Pharisees can hear what he's telling them too. We get a lot of that in chapter 16. But one of the things that we see very particularly there is that Jesus is calling out the Pharisees over and over because, as Luke says, the Pharisees are lovers of money. And so Jesus is kind of calling them out for their love of money in front of the disciples because he wants the disciples to understand that that's a problem and they need to beware of that. And he's also cautioning the disciples about the Pharisees' love of money in front of the Pharisees because he wants to call them to repent. So you see this back and forth over and over. But that's our first clue, I think, for understanding what he says in our gospel reading. Remember that bad example of the Pharisees. He's saying, Pharisees are lovers of money, but you guys, don't be like them. That little clue, I think, gets a little bit stronger when we look at the, exactly what it is that they ask for. Because they say, Lord, increase our faith. There's a little passage in chapter 16 that I think actually makes this a lot clearer. Chapter 16, verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? Now, I know that when we hear that, we hear faithful and not faith. And in our minds, as English speakers, those are two different words, right? So you can be faithful you can keep your word, you can be loyal, you can be trustworthy without having faith. Because in our mind, those are two different categories. Or you could have faith, you could believe something, you could put your hope in something, but not necessarily be faithful. In the Hebrew mind, that's not really a thing. Faithfulness and faith go together. If you actually believe that God is God, then you have no, trust, no, no choice but to obey him, to be faithful to him. Those two things go together. And so there's a sense in which when the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith, they're also saying, Lord, make us more faithful. Increase our faithfulness. Jesus here is telling his disciples that whoever is faithful in little will also be faithful in much. So in other words, the people who are faithful in the small things that God gives them, God is going to reward them with bigger things. I think the flip side of that, if you're unfaithful in little things, not going to get the bigger things. Seems as though maybe that's what the disciples are asking for. They want to increase their faithfulness because maybe there's a reward on the other side of that that they want. The irony to this is that when Jesus talks about rewards, when he talks about wealth here, let's see, what does he say? If, you, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? The, the wealth there, or power, or land, or money, or whatever it is, you know, like the things that we want, Jesus calls those the little things not the big things. They're not the reward on the other side of faithfulness. Those are the little things. But what it seems like over and over in chapter 16 is that the Pharisees have that backwards. 
So the Pharisees are kind of posturing as these people who are exemplars of faithfulness, and they think that their wealth or their status or their standing is something that justifies that or that proves that to other people. So the fact that the Pharisees have stuff, the fact that they're wealthy, that to them is proof that they have been faithful and obedient. Those are God's rewards for their good deeds. It seems as though maybe the disciples have caught sort of that same idea. So they want to be faithful. They want to be obedient. That's good and genuine. But at the same time, maybe underneath that is a desire, kind of like the Pharisees, to get the reward for that faithfulness and for that obedience. I think that's why Jesus gives this kind of seemingly bizarre answer. Right? It's hard to be sure exactly what it is that he's saying with this weird picture about a tree that uproots itself and plants itself in the water. So there's a lot of dispute about that. Uh, but I'll tell you what I think is part of it. I think kind of like the way that God answered Habakkuk, Jesus is flipping their assumptions or their expectations upside down. Right? So in one, pen, in one sentence, he paints this picture of a tree that because it hears a word, it obeys, and in obedience, it pulls itself out of the ground, and it goes over to the water, and it plants itself in the water, right? And so there's this picture of something very powerful in faith, that it's got authority, it's got power. But I think on purpose, he's doing this in a way that makes what the disciples want look kind of dumb. Because again, why would you want to do that? What's the point of making a mulberry tree plant itself in the ocean? That's bad gardening. And since, as his answer is not immediately clear to us, and probably wasn't immediately clear to them, he goes on from there, though, to a picture that they would understand, that was direct, that was clear for them. It's that picture of a master and his servant. So he's basically saying to his disciples, you, you guys know that a servant doesn't think that his master owes him anything just for doing his job. That's what this thanks means here. It's not like he's, he's expecting a thank you card. What he's saying is that the servant doesn't put the master in his debt. Master's not obligated to do anything for the servant because the servant just did what he was told. Because in their world, a servant is a servant, and a master is a master, and those relationships are not going to flip. The servant can't make his master owe him anything. I think that's the more obvious surface-level truth to what Jesus is saying. So if the disciples think that their faithfulness is going to make God owe them something, they're wrong. Because again, at the end of the day, the servant is the servant, and the master is the master. Those relationships are not going to flip. And I think he's also telling his disciples, I mean, you look at the Pharisees. Look at their example. The Pharisees think that their wealth is a reward that proves their faithfulness. But do you really want their reward? Because their reward is the little thing. Do you want to be obedient so you can have money and power and prestige? Compared to the things that actually matter, compared to the things that actually count for something in the kingdom of God, that power that they have is about as useful as the power to tell a tree to go dunk itself in the ocean. It doesn't matter. It's not worth anything. Those things don't matter in God's eternal kingdom. And they don't satisfy here either. This is actually a point that Jesus has been building towards throughout all of chapter 16. If you want to kind of sum it up in one, two sentences, it's that growth in faith or growth in faithfulness 
doesn't look like growing in wealth or status or power. Doesn't look like growing into a master. Growth in faith or growth in faithfulness looks like growth as a servant. Growth in faith is growth as a servant. And so that's the primary point of application here. That's the primary thing, like on the surface, that Jesus is saying to his disciples. Don't be lovers of money. Don't be lovers of power or status. Don't be like the Pharisees and chase after things they can't satisfy. Don't run after power that's useless. Don't cling to things or to money so tightly that you can't respond to the needs of the people around you. That's something that we need to hear too, right? Because there's a temptation for us to also chase after things that can't satisfy or to hold on to the things that we have in ways that harden our hearts either towards the people around us or towards God. It's also a familiar one if we think about that maybe position that the disciples are in. Because how many of us have ever felt like we've been faithful and obedient and then gotten the short end of the stick on the other side of that, right? Like there's something underneath us that also thinks that faithfulness and obedience should be rewarded with something that is good. We've probably all walked through places where it felt like we got the opposite. Like we were faithful and then on the other side of that was just pain and hardship and heartache. This was not something the disciples picked up on really quickly either. Maybe that's a comfort. Because it seems like Jesus has to tell them this over and over and over again throughout the Gospels. But something that is beautiful is that we do eventually see that they do get it. Because when you read through Acts, you see these same people, but always giving away their things to whoever's in need, selling whatever it is that they have to give to the poor, pouring out their whole lives, their whole selves, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the people around them. Something happens between this story and the book of Acts that causes them to see what it is that Jesus is saying and to be persuaded, to get it, and to want that. What changed? It's that even underneath those points of application, there's actually an even deeper meaning to the story. And they actually saw that story play out in front of them, in their Lord, in Jesus. So you think about a passage like Philippians 2. What they saw was that their Lord has a son. If he's the Lord's son, if he's the master's son, then he's their Lord too. And that son became a servant. So think Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What was it that changed how they understood what Jesus said? What was it that caused them to actually get it? It was that they saw Jesus himself humbled, faithful, obedient, as a servant, all the way to the point of death. What they saw is that we have a master who has actually joined us in our low place, in our low status. 
But where we were unworthy servants, like the ones in the story, unfaithful servants, disobedient servants, he was worthy and faithful and obedient. And this servant lived as a servant and suffered as a servant and even died as a servant, right? Like Paul said, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And why did that servant leave behind the glory that belonged to him? Why did he empty himself to become this servant? Hebrews tells us that since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So he became a servant to deliver us from our slavery to sin and death. And not just to put us in some sort of new bondage, but to actually make us sons and daughters of God. Right? Remember what Paul said? He became a servant, but because he did that, God has exalted him and glorified him. Well, he also did that so that in his exaltation, he could bring us with him. If we want to frame it in the words of Jesus' parable, the master became a servant so that he could raise us from servants to sons and daughters of God. So do you see how much better he is than the master in the parables? You see how much better our Lord is than the Lord in the parable? The master in the parable tells his servants to prepare a table for him, to make supper for him, and to dress properly while he eats. But ours prepares a table for us. Ours is the one who died naked on a cross while other people were trading his clothes so that we could be covered, so that our shame could be covered by his righteousness. He's the one who has made the unworthy servants actually worthy to sit at the table of the Lord himself, to take the bread and the wine of eternal life from his hands. Jesus is giving us a picture of what the life of faith actually looks looks like, and it's one that flips upside down the assumptions that his disciples had. It's not being raised to the station of masters in this world with wealth or land or power or prestige like the Pharisees thought it was, but it's actually being raised up to the master's table by the master himself, joining him, though, as servants, servants to God, servants to each other, servants to our world. That's the life that he calls us to, to feast at his table and to join him as servants because that's the way that he builds his kingdom. So this morning, we get to come to our Lord's table and to eat his bread and drink his wine. You can do it. Do it remembering these things. Unworthy servants. So don't think that you've earned anything by your faithfulness or by your obedience because that's the trap the disciples are falling into. The other side of that, don't let any lie or accusation make you believe that your sin or your guilt or your shame has disqualified you from this table because it's Jesus himself who has actually bought that for you. We were unworthy servants. We didn't do our duty. But the servant has prepared a table for us. So come to his table and eat with your Lord and know him not as a brutal tyrant who's only sitting in judgment, but know him as your father. Know his son, the servant, your brother, because he's made you sons and daughters of the living God. 
You can sit at that table in the love that the Father and the Son have because that love is given to you too. Our calling is to go into that world carrying that same love as servants, following our Lord, following our example. With the assurance that you don't have to chase wealth or power or status or anything else because you've been given everything in Jesus. There isn't anything more to be given. That's the reward that actually matters. That, receiving this gift of Christ's righteousness, being brought into the love of God, looking forward with hope to the restoration of all things and eternity in his presence. That's the reward that can actually satisfy. And he's given it to you. Psalm 84, it'd be better to be a doorkeeper or a servant in the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. It's better to be a servant in his house than to be anywhere else. But this is what he's given us, a reward that can actually satisfy. Amen.